Hello and welcome to Prepublished. I'm Sophia. Justine Picardy is a journalist, novelist and biographer. Until recently, she was editor of Harper's Bazaar magazine, having been features director of British Vogue. I first encountered Justine through her publication of Before I Say Goodbye, a collection of pieces by and about her sister Ruth, who died of cancer in 1997, and then through her account of fashion and family, My Mother's Wedding Dress. She's also written the best-selling memoir, If the Spirit Moves You. Justine has written an acclaimed biography of Coco Chanel, but her latest book, Miss Dior, tells the story of Catherine, Christian Dior's sister and muse. A fighter in the French Resistance, she was a survivor of Ravensbrück concentration camp who received the Croix de Guerre and the Légion d'Honneur. She became a rose farmer in Provence and died a dozen years ago, aged 90. I can't wait to read Justine's account of her life. We recorded this episode in July 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Justine, welcome to Prepublished. Thank you for having me. I am really excited about this because I started out, my, my first published book was called Threads and it was about a teenage fashion designer. And, um, and my passion was high fashion, I suppose, the making of it particularly rather than the wearing of it. And um, I was always very jealous, indeed, I still am, of anyone who got to work in the fashion world, but particularly to write about the fashion world. And that has largely been your life, hasn't it? Yes. Um, I, I started not in fashion, actually. I started as an investigative journalist for the Sunday Times. That um, I didn't know. Yeah, I, I, I started... I, I read English at, at university at Cambridge um, and I did actually do the Vogue writing competition while I oh, was at university. so did I, so did I. <laughs> and I was offered a job at Vogue um, right. having done that. Um, but at the same time, um, I'd also applied to do the MA in, in journalism, in newspaper journalism at City University and I was accepted onto that course. So I did that course and was offered a job at the Sunday Times who then trained me and I worked in the newsroom, I worked for the Insight team as an investigative reporter, I worked in features, I just had the most incredible training, I did some foreign reporting um, and I would say that that training which taught me to find things out has stood me in, in really good stead. So I was always interested in fashion and I was always interested in the manifestation of, of clothes in literature. So although, for example, you know, Daphne du Maurier and even at that time, Charlotte Bronte um, would have been slightly looked down on as not part of the great tradition when I was studying at Cambridge. Right. I loved those books like Rebecca and I also love the, the, the way that clothes become a manifestation of, of profound emotions. So, and, and, I, and I loved clothes. I mean, you know, I, I, I did love beautiful clothes. So it was, it was part of, of my identity and, and what I was interested in. But yeah, definitely when I started as a professional writer, as it were, which was as a, as a journalist, I was not writing about fashion at all. And, and that really only came later um, through having worked 
on newspapers um, and but I joined my, Marie Claire for example when that launched and I um, edited the Observer magazine at a time when um, the Observer magazine contained the sort of fashion content for the Observer so it certainly wasn't the only thing in in my life but it I suppose I became more associated with it particularly when I wrote my fifth fifth book uh, which was a biography of Coco Chanel so yeah that would be the point I would guess that people started thinking of me um in primarily in in that way what what year did the Chanel book come out it came out in 2010 and it yes it was my fifth book Chanel was very very superstitious or um and five was her lucky number um but my first book, actually, which came out in 2001, was about my sister's death. It's called If the Spirit Moves You. And it's an, a, a, it's a, a, it was a memoir but about Ruth's death and the aftermath of her death. But also it, it did contain a lot of reporting in it. So I became very interested in how uh, the idea of, of communication with the dead had really gripped the, the Victorians and including Victorian scientists like Thomas Edison and so I suppose although it was memoir it really did draw on my um, on my background in in reporting and 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 that was my first book it was published by Picador in 2001 so yeah yeah I mean that's writing about Ruth is, is how I became aware of you as a writer I suppose because you published Before I Say Goodbye which caught her writings. Um, yes while I was editor of the Observer magazine because um, Ruth was a journalist as well and she was working at the Independent where I had previously worked when she was diagnosed with breast cancer and it became apparent very early on that it was terminal and she was only 32 and she had the baby twins um, and it's just extraordinary to think of this now. But she suggested she wanted to write about it for the Independent, and at that point, the Independent didn't didn't want her to write about it. Um, Isn't that extraordinary? I know. Um, anyway, or her particular, you know, commissioning editor at the time. So I said, well, why don't you write about it for for me at the Observer? And so she wrote a, a column that we called Before I Say Goodbye, which was then turned into a, a collection of her writing soon after her death. It was real breakthrough journalism, wasn't it? It was, it was well, I, I remember following it. So, um, I mean, was I, I was roughly the same age. I was born in 1966. So I think I was a couple so of you years younger than her. A couple of years younger. She was born yeah. in 64, yes. Yes, and I was just starting to have a family myself. So yes, it, it resonated. But but I mean, and now I think a lot of people are on podcasts, on the radio, talking about these these very deep life experiences. But they yes. weren't then. No, and... there was a real taboo. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And yeah. it was, I think there was a, a I mean, again, it seems impossible now. But I think there was a taboo in talking about breast cancer. Yes. Um, there was a taboo about people writing about dying young. I mean, Oscar Moore, who had been a friend of mine at university, 
had written a, a column for the Guardian called um, PWA, People with AIDS, and so he that you know was beginning. That was in the early days. I think that that AIDS crisis had allowed some form of of writing. Um, but yeah, Ruth really seemed very unusual at that time, and the response to her pieces in the Observer was enormous. And she, Ruth and I had always really written for each other. Uh, she's my sister, but but also my closest friend. And it's interesting, I'm talking about her in the present tense. She still yes. feels very important, um, very present. And I just, the other day, um, my mother sent me um, this little magazine that Ruth and I had done together. We used to do a magazine with um, some friends of ours, that, that family friends, um, children who were a bit older than us, and it was called Bristocks because they lived in Bristol and we at that point lived in Oxford. Yes. And um, Tessa Hadley, who was then called Tessa Nichols, was, she's a bit older than me and she's now, you know, very, very brilliant and accomplished writer, but she was, you know, the other editor and so we would take it in turns so um the, in fact tessa found this old magazine which was the one that ruth and i had made and we were creating a magazine for a very small audience but from such an early age so i think ruth was somebody that certainly i always wrote for and wrote with and created with and i think that 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 she that relationship is key to my life as a writer yes and and also actually you know then as an editor that this sense of of sisterliness of 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 solidarity of camaraderie of and of really knowing who you're writing for so I was writing for my sister Ruth and I and for Tessa and and that's really the most important thing to know. You know, what's your voice and, and who's your audience and who are you writing for? It's interesting how how family has kind of woven its way through your writing so profoundly. And I think it kind of, it still does. I mean, it, today I read your Instagram posts. And, yes. And they're still that family really, aren't they? You know, the husband and the dog and what your sons are up to. Yeah. Uh, it's still there. Absolutely. And, um, and... I've been writing a daily Instagram post since the beginning of the pandemic and it's become a really important way of, of you know, of, of it's a very authentic voice of mine. You know, I'm not kind of making anything up in it and I'm pretty honest as well in it. And it's it's just sharing. It's that it's reaching out to people. And I think that's just something I've I've always I've always done. And offering some sort of solace as well, I think, given, given the beautiful rural environment that you that you were lucky enough to be able to write yeah, about. Yeah, but also to be open and, and so when I'm feeling anxious, as for example I have been in the last couple of days because my yeah. younger son, who's 27, has, has got COVID um, despite having had a, one vaccination and he actually got COVID at the beginning of the first wave. And, you know, Instagram can be a way of, I don't know, making people feel bad about themselves because everything seems so perfect. But 
in in you know in some forms of social media but or or it can be very very angry which i think twitter can be but i think oh, that yes. there's an element of all the, the way i suppose i communicate through instagram is just a way of of sharing with people and i know that at times that have been really terribly traumatic and and when i've been you know grief stricken or heartbroken in the past the thing that has kept me going is 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 reading and there's that sense that a voice reaching out to you in the darkness a kind of hand reaching out to you in the darkness so when ruth died um i was thinking about it actually earlier today about all i could read that when when ruth was dying was T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, because I really, really felt as if, you know, I was going through a wasteland. Yes. And then, but I also remember um, when my first marriage ended, I read Nora Ephron, Heartburn, you know, which is a, just the most wonderful book about the breakup of a marriage. And, and you know, I felt I would read it in the middle of the night and it, it made me laugh which was important but that sense when you read something that really resonates and tells you that you're not alone and that's what I want to do as a writer is to is to even if it's just one person that reads it and knows that I understand you know that we share some mutual understanding yes now I get that it's funnily enough I'd I often turn to Nora Ephron too when I need exactly that and and we'll come to that sense of reaching out, I think, when we talk about your latest book mm. in a minute, because I think I, I sense from what I've read about it so far that it will it will have that that feeling of of heartbreak and and disaster and survival and yes. all of those things. That, that's um, at the heart of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But I, I'm I'm I really want to say that um, the first book of yours that I read was your 2005 one, My Mother's Wedding Dress. And uh -huh. I was furious <laughs> because I thought, damn it, I had that idea. The thing about um, good ideas for writing is you do actually have to write them very well. <laughs> and I didn't do any of that. I just read yours, which was fantastic. Um, and I particularly remember your actual mother's wedding dress. I mean, yes. I literally got the book right here. But, you know, it's black and strapless and 60s late 50s early 60s um she was married in 1960 and it yeah. was very much the sort of chanel little black dress of that era uh, i i had one very similar that actually i inherited through my grandmother which yes. very sadly fell apart while i was wearing it to a school event which was rather dreadful um but it, it was a very similar thing and, and it was also boned and it, it had that effect of making my shape look an awful lot better than it really was and I tried to get that into threads when I was writing that that a relationship with a dress can be a very personal and, and uplifting thing but of course you you wove family and, and anecdote so much through that book and I, I just I loved that combination thank you. Of, of writing thank you yes it's interesting because at that point it hadn't been done before though you know other people have written very movingly and powerfully since then about their relationship with particular pieces of items of clothes and and I think that it's already existed in my favorite novels so 
one of my favorite ever novels is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. Oh, and too. yeah, and you know, the wonderful description of the, the, the green dyed dresses that the two sisters, you know, wear and the bearskin coats. The bearskin the yeah, the bearskin coats. I mean it's all there. And and I love, you know, Nancy Mitford on on writing about clothes as well. So I think that perhaps it was it was an overlooked, it was a marginalised area. I think fashion of, and clothes are often marginalised from the mainstream culture because they're dismissed as being, you know, feminine. And Female. Or, I know, it drives me mad. Yeah, and, and it's it still drives me crazy today. The fact, I mean, I'm, I love the BBC. I'm, a, I'm always listening to... Radio 4 and you know and there's so much that's wonderful about the BBC but they never treat fashion or clothing in a serious way or give it no. any airtime at all and it's interesting because it's a multi-billion pound industry uh, yeah it's one of the things that we're strongest in and most creative in in the world exactly I mean it's bit fashion is a bigger industry than cars than publishing you know and yet it's it's constantly seen as as other or frivolous or unimportant. Yes, I know. It it is extraordinary. I was reading a piece by Andrew Lloyd Webber in the Times today talking about theatre and mm. the fact that the Lion King has made more money than all the Harry Potter films put together. That's um, and incredible. yet live theatre is not treated at all at the same level by the government and you know in terms of covid payments and all that kind of thing as the film industry is. It's yes. not seen as something that needs to be saved. Yeah. Um, and of course his production of Cinderella had to close because one cast member tested positive. And um yeah, it, it, it fascinates me that there is this huge disconnect between what people passionately care about and are very, very good at in this country and make billions of pounds doing yeah. and what is seen as serious, as just it's, as you say. It's it's very odd that this should still be the case in 2021. Well, hopefully we can do a little bit about that with this. Have you come across the um, the, the website Clothes in Books, by the way? No, I haven't. I shall look that up immediately. Do. Um, I haven't made it into it yet, which I'm very sad about, but I'm sure you have. Um, but it, it's wonderful. I can't remember the name of the woman who does it, but um, she takes clothes in books extremely seriously, as indeed they should be. Good. And, and finds those wonderful passages that we all kind of just have in our DNA now and yes. love. Yes. Um, where clothing really captures a moment or a mood or a person. Oh, well, thank you for that recommendation. I shall look at it immediately after we've finished. <laughs> Um, and, and then I, I mean, I know you were, you were features director at Vogue, as you say, you edited the Observer magazine, you're columnist for the Telegraph, and then you edited Harper's Bazaar. Yes. Um, finishing was it this year even that that you you did your last? Edition? No, I I finished um, at the beginning of 2020. Okay, so it really wasn't that long ago. And I, I have many of those which I bought in the V&A shop where they. Oh yes. How wonderful. You're <laughs> um, my favourite kind of reader who bought it in the V&A shop. Oh, well, it always looked very special there. And and again, I mean, taking fashion hugely seriously. Um, I loved it. And they were, there was a real sort of British edge to them, which I really liked. As well. Yes. Well, I felt there was so much to be celebrated about our Britishness. And I think that really came through. But I mean, it hasn't just been clothes, has it? I was, I was really, I mean, I haven't read it and I must, but but you've also written about Daphne du Maurier. Haven't yes, you? Um, yeah. My fourth book was was about Daphne du Maurier and, and I decided to write it 
as fiction, even though I was drawing on real letters and 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 her archives, because she is such a fascinating writer. She her own um, memoir is often written in a very fictional way to to such a degree that she calls herself Daphne by the third person in her memoir. But her fiction often has a very autobiographical element to it. So, for example, the experience in Rebecca of finding some, you know, some letters from a a previous lover um, of her husband's. So I was interested in exploring that, that sort of overlapping landscape between memoir and fiction and also the way that writers can become obsessed and possessed and haunted by previous writers so she felt that way about the Brontes uh so yeah that's that's what that book was about but it did in a in a strange way it opened some doors for me for my Chanel biography because yeah because a number of biographies have been written about Chanel, not in English, uh, but in, in French. But I felt that I, I mean, I had always been fascinated by Chanel um, ever since, you know, my mother's wedding dress. Um, but I felt that I couldn't write a biography about Chanel in case, in, unless I had something really new to say about her and some new material. Yeah. So I'd, <clears throat> I'd been thinking about it for a while. But then I met two women who'd known her very well. One was her great niece and the other was her oldest surviving friend. And both of them um, said that Chanel, her two favourite, you know, her favourite books had been Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier and the Brontes. And so I was able to talk to them about my own love of du Maurier. And, oh, I see. Yeah. And, and they sort of felt that that showed that I had the right sensibility to, to write about, about Gabrielle Chanel. Um, and then other doors opened. So... That is really fascinating. I had wondered how that had all come together. Yes, yeah, I was really lucky. And then you got married in Chanel, I guess. I got married in Chanel, yes, because my first marriage ended while I was researching the book. Um, And and then while I was writing the book, I, I met the man who became my second husband, Philip. But... And I'd spent so much time in the Chanel archives by this point, but also... Karl Lagerfeld, who was a great reader, a great bibliophile. He had mm. a library of 300,000 books. And he, and he read the first six chapters I sent to him of, of, of what would become my Chanel book. And, and he said he loved it and he loved the mixture of sort of darkness and light and the fact that I was tackling and, and exploring the, the darkness in her um, anyway, when he found out that I was getting married, he said, well, of course, you must be married in Chanel. Um, and um, and I got married in in a beautiful sort of... It, it, it had at its heart a sort of early 1930s Chanel cream um, silk dress. And, and I 
was the same age when I got married as Chanel would have been when she designed that original dress. So it felt like I'd come full circle after my mother had got married in a Chanel little black dress that I should be marrying in a in a Chanel cream, ivory cream silk dress <laughs> felt right. That's really romantic. Fantastic. It was so romantic. And and now we move on to Dior. Um, yes. The new book, which I am... Well, I'm excited to read for all sorts of reasons. Um, it, this one's about Catherine, isn't it? Yes. And who was in the resistance. So, yes, it's called Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture. And it's it's been a long time coming. So after my Chanel book came out in 2010, um, I was given the opportunity to look in the Dior archives. And my Chanel book... It was completely editorially independent. You know, it wasn't commissioned by Chanel. It wasn't paid for by Chanel Mm. in that I needed that editorial independence. But they did give me access to their archives. And Dior said, you know, would you like to come and look in our archives? And I love archives. I mean, I'd spent time in the Dumaurier archives and the Bronte archives and... Even when I was writing, if this way it moves you, I spent time in the archives of the College for Psychic Studies and the Society for Psychical Research. Anyway, I looked in the Dior archives, which were fascinating. And what I saw made me think that it would make an incredible exhibition at the V&A. Um, and I actually suggested it. But at that point, I couldn't see my way quite into a book about Christian Dior. And soon afterwards, I became editor of of Harper's Bazaar, which was in 2012. And I was so full on. But I did a couple of projects. I did the text for a coffee table book about Richard Avedon's port, you know, pictures of, of Dior from the 1940s and 50s. Yes, the classic, iconic ones. Of those, those amazing. Exactly. And then... Um, There was nothing about Catherine, really, but I was talking to one of the Dior archivists one day and he started talking a bit about Catherine and, you know, talked about her having been in the French Resistance, but nobody had ever written about her, very little was known about her. And it was like being that sense of possession, which I always need to write a book. It's like a sort of haunting almost. And Uh it... And and that's how the book opens. You know, this is the story of a ghost who walked into my life. And and I'm really interested in the relationship between the living and the dead. I'm I think when Margaret Atwood said um all writing is is about negotiating with the dead, for anyway, for whatever reason, Catherine Dior I just became obsessed with her story and the fact that it had never been told before and the fact that she was the original inspiration for her brother, Christian Dior, and his first perfume, the Miss Dior, and, and you know the way he revolutionised fashion in the immediate aftermath of the war with this, with this sort of supremely romantic idea of femininity and at the heart of it you have this this woman his younger sister who was not only his younger sister she was his best friend they were incredibly close and I'm interested in sibling relationships because of my sister Ruth 
And I just thought, why has her story not been told? And what does it tell us that her story and the story of other women like her, because she ended up being deported to Ravensbrook, has not been has not been more widely told. And I'm half Jewish. My on my father's side of the family are, are Jewish, and in my father's extended family, a number of um, his relatives died in the Holocaust because they were European Jews. But I'd never even heard of Ravensbrück. You know, I knew about, as I think most people do, about Auschwitz or Belsen. But yes. I didn't know there was a concentration camp intended specifically for women. I didn't know that women like Catherine Dior were sent to a concentration camp. And I certainly no, I didn't know that. that Christian Dior's vision, you know, he, he and Chanel, the two most... Are the, the two most famous designers, really, of all time. And really, I feel, define not just fashion, but a kind of a wider view of, of femininity. And they're completely opposite in their approach. So Chanel is about, you know, the, the, the in a sense, the liberation of women. Um, trousers, the stripy top, the low heels, taking corsets away. And... And Dior is about this this sort of romanticized, dreamlike sense of magic that is so compelling and alluring after the horrors of the Second World War. And I, having written about Chanel, I really wanted to understand where that vision of Dior's came from. But yeah. also, it tells us more about you know what, how do we recover? after a terrible crisis and and as i was writing the book we were, we were living through the the first global pandemic since the global flu pandemic of 1918 to 1921 and you look at chanel or dior i mean they both lived through two world wars a global flu pandemic the wall street crash the great depression they were both really you know, personally affected by these events in their lives. And we all know how disruptive and traumatic the last 18 months has been and, you know, and how disruptive and traumatic it continues to be. But I also became aware in writing about the Second World War and its aftermath, how things are covered up. And, and of course, what we wear is a way both of celebrating the human spirit, but it is also about covering things up. And I became really interested in how the story of Catherine was covered up. Why was that? Uh, that's a very long answer that I explore in the book, but I think that there was, you know, less than 1% of the French population actively resisted. When Catherine joined the resistance, at the end of 1941, there were maybe 100,000 active members of the resistance in a population of 40 million. Right. And even at the height, you know, just after D-Day, there was maximum 400,000. So that's 1%. And there was widespread collaboration. And when, for example, Catherine was arrested, the, the unit of the Gestapo that arrested her the majority of the people in it, and she was tortured in Paris, were French. So I think there was a deep discomfort and unease 
in talking about collaboration and a sense that there had to be you know unity reconciliation post-war unity and reconciliation and you see that with General de Gaulle so when he liberates Paris Paris was liberated just 10 days after Catherine Dior was deported from Paris to, to Germany and she was on the last train of deportees um, and the men were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and, and the women to Ravensbrück and 10 days after their train left Paris Paris was liberated and General de Gaulle makes this extraordinary speech saying you know Paris has been liberated by by the French by the whole of France you know and it became very important in the myth that everybody had been united against the Nazi invaders whereas in fact there were a great many collaborators but for France to move forward and to heal itself that people you know the economy had to be rebuilt the country had to be rebuilt I mean the country lay in ruins because of the harbours were destroyed the rail lines were destroyed you know the industry had been destroyed and you see the same thing in Germany in that there were the post the famous post-war trials after the war the Nuremberg trials and this is something I write about in the book but of the thousands of people that worked at Ravensbrück and presided over this terrible regime of, of cruelty and brutality only you know a couple of dozen people were ever prosecuted thousands and thousands of people were never prosecuted eight million people were in the nazi party and i think the allies realized fairly soon they couldn't send everybody to prison so a lot of things it's easier to think about the beauty of dior or the post-war economic miracle which you see you know, which is the sort of foundations for modern capitalism, really, that becomes the prevailing narrative. And you see it also in, in those household brands, the German household brands that, I mean, I was shocked to discover that Siemens had a slave labour camp at Ravensbrück. Yeah. And, you know, Catherine worked as a slave labourer at a series of of camps and and. Nobody talked about that after the war. And was there an uh, um, an element of it to do with the fact that she was a woman? I mean, I know I've been sort of hear, hearing recently about so many fewer female resistance fighters were honoured afterwards. Yes, than absolutely. Men. Yes, and and definitely the women in the resistance were marginalised. They were not celebrated in the same way. I mean, she was decorated with the highest honours. Um, in terms of medals, so she and she received everything from a Légion d'honneur to a Croix de Guerre. She had a decoration from the British authorities because her resistance network provided very important intelligence to the the, the British. Um, but their stories weren't celebrated in the same way as as men, and that is something I explore in the book as to why oh, that happened. I'll be fascinated by that. I'd, one of the the last book I wrote before I turned to crime um, was about women artists, and I, I wrote it for the Tate. And, yes, you know, and there don't seem to be that many of them until you look, and then the second that you look, 
you find them throughout history, going back 3,000 years. You know, wherever you look, there are practising, successful, celebrated women exactly, artists. Exactly, exactly. But they don't make it into the history books. Yes. Which just, it really interests me. Women who were who were um, appreciated by their fellow male artists at yes. the time, who exhibited with them, you know, it, it, among the Impressionists, but Morrissey was the most successful for years. And then, and then as soon as she died, whoop, that yeah. was as if she wasn't there. Really fascinates me. Women Something are that has written in history. Exactly, are written, are written out of history, as Virginia Woolf wrote in, a, you know, A Room of One's Own, Anonymous was a woman. Yes, until women started becoming academics, I found in the art world anyway. Yes. And as soon as you get female curators in senior positions, then you start getting really interesting monograms about female artists and then people start noticing them. And that's, and you know, women like you, I guess, writing about women like her. Yes, and um, I was also, as editor of Harper's Bazaar, I really, you know, championed female artists, both living artists and and artists who had died. And we did a series of, of different covers um, in conjunction with the Tate, the V&A, the National Portrait Gallery, celebrating the work of female artists from, you know, Bridget Riley, Maggie Hamling, a, a, a wide, wide range of female artists because I felt they deserved their central place in the conversation on a yes. front cover, literally. <laughs> exactly, where they need to be. Yeah. It's so interesting now that there's a, a Paula Rigo exhibition out at the moment and people are saying, you know, she's she's on a par with Hockney and, and why did we not know? But, I mean, people within the art world knew how amazing she was, but she somehow just hadn't been allowed to break through until... Exactly. Yeah. And I think in fashion today, I mean, it's extraordinary that Maria Grazia Curie, who's a, the creative director of Dior, you know, is the first female designer at Dior. And she's doing a lot to change the conversation um, around women in fashion because although everybody knows about Coco Chanel, it is extraordinary how many more famous male designers there are than women. And I think certainly in high fashion, there is this myth that, you know, it takes a man to be a great artist in in fashion. Well, I grew up, idolizing Vivienne Westwood so I've yes. never thought that but yes um, but if you look the, traditionally at you know Balenciaga yes who was a genius Yves Saint Laurent yeah. um, Balmain Givenchy you know they are largely men and, and in Absolutely. the industry today there are far more famous and successful male designers than there are women so I, I really look forward to to reading about Catherine and, and I'm glad that she's going to, Catherine Dior, that she's going to get her, her place in history back. And I imagine her brother would have been very content to know that that was going to happen. Yes, and the book is about their relationship, um, but it's also about other forgotten lives. And it, it's also about silence in a way, because I think that the women who survived... Ravensbrook and their terrible experiences in the Second World War, some of them tried to write about what had happened to them and nobody wanted to either publish or read their memoirs. And others were so traumatised by the experience that they found it very hard to talk about. And and I I interviewed this incredible woman who'd been in one of the the slave labour camps with Catherine, who's still alive, and, and I met her and... She was so moving, but, you know, nobody had really wanted to talk to her about it before. And 
she sat and told me their, her story and the story of many others. And there had been a, a prevailing silence. So I wanted to give voice to that. But it's also, although it has very, very dark episodes in it, and it, there is also... I mean, Catherine was extraordinary in that her stoicism and her determination to rebuild her life. And she did survive and she came back to France and she started growing roses. And the roses that she grew um, were used in Misty Orr and her rose fields are still cultivated. And those roses are still used as an essential ingredient in the Misty Orr perfume. And I find it extraordinary how she found that solace in the world of nature, in gardening. And it's something that I love and I share and I've done more gardening since the pandemic started than, than ever before. And I planted some Provencal roses in our garden in Norfolk in memory of, of Catherine and, and other women like her and her comrades and for those who didn't survive. And the the symbol of these roses, which sort of runs like a, a motif throughout the book, is very important. And, and, and roses were also a symbol, a very important symbol to some of the women at, at Ravensbrook. So, and, and roses are beautiful and, and they have this delicate scent, but they also have thorns and it's incredible how they can survive what looked like impossible conditions so there is there is hope as well in the book it's not relentlessly bleak i i think that image of roses is lovely and it's a it's a wonderful one to end on so i'm going to end the conversation there thank you so much justine i've really really enjoyed it i've loved talking to you too thank you so much for asking me to join you I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast, and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>